Hi. Hi. You want to cut off the video so I don't know who you are? No, I, I'm. <laughs> I, it's out. It doesn't matter. Um. Hi. I'm Helen. Hi, Helen. I'm Hildy or Jerry. Hi. How are you? Um. I don't know. I'm. I'm as good as you are, probably. Um, yeah, yeah, I guess, you know, that's probably a really nice way of uh, negotiating the answer to that question these days. <laughs> this is, um, well, you know, it's crazy. I'm sure you probably feel similar, or maybe you do. Like, I'm, I'm doing my best to remain calm and just put one foot in front of the other, you know, my life hasn't always been easy. I've had major challenges and now we all have a major challenge together and we're just having to do the same thing collectively, which is collectively put one foot in front of the other. Uh-huh. Yep. Yep. That's all very, very true. That is all very, very true. And, um, yeah, it's a reset. Yeah. It's a great big huge reset. It's a ter it's terrifying to be honest, but it's also, you know, uh, I don't know. When my um are we on now? Are we It's not so just so you know, okay. it's not yeah. um it's not live. It's not like AM radio in the sense. I just joke and call it AM radio because the quality is so bad because I'm literally just using my MacBook and my Got cell it. phone. And I just want to keep the expectation low. Okay. <laughs> so, um, uh -huh. so don't worry about that. It's all right. The, the thing that I want to do and, um, you know, go with it and just be yourself. But I just want to talk to people in real time as we're going through this because, sure. you know, nobody has, nobody has a solution. Um, but we, we have each other and we have like, I don't mean to sound woo woo or cheesy, but it'll be everybody offering their expertise and their perspective that, that we are going to use as building blocks uh, to figure out how to put this back together. Right. And, you know, I, I know this is kind of early to say this, but I think the art world is going to look really different when we get to the other side. And that's okay because uh -huh. we, we need a, we need resets, uh, clearly, you know? <laughs> um, so y you don't have to be perfect right now at, you know, you just have to be yourself and talk about who you are and what you think and what experience you've had that'll sort of lead us uh, to finding solutions. That's all. All right. I'm game. And Lord knows perfection is not my forte. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> so I'm glad the bar has been lowered to the non-perfect because it's not my game. <laughs> perfection is not my game. It's yeah. okay. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I, um, I, I think it's interesting, you know, I, I'm not trying to like exploit the situation in any way, but I've had the opportunity now in this week to set up conversations with people who I admire like you. And um, it's nice to humanize this because, you know, we, we're all going through it right now and we need our heroes and our idols to lift us up and guide us. But it's also nice to just talk to people who are like, 
I'm not perfect. I'm figuring it out. <laughs> blah, blah, blah. You know, this is what I know. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. And you know, um, uh, like the heroes and idols thing. I mean, obviously I have my heroes and I have my idols and I look up to them too. Um, but there are sense, I don't know what it is about social media that wanted to clean up flaws, you know, or, or like make flaws into this site of such horrible, um, friction. Uh, but the flawed quality of all of us, I think, is um, something to be extremely tender about right now. You know, um, we we got super, super, I think as a culture, we got so judgy to use the contemporary lingo. And it's, it's not healthy. It's just no. not healthy. Yeah. And it's not sustainable. No, I know. I, without mentioning any names, you know, I went on I was just scrolling through one of my Instagrams today and I saw this person who's, you know, taking time right now to uh, call people out in the art world in like pretty aggressive ways. And a lot of it has to do with class and Uh. wealth disparity. And I understand that that's real. I'm, I'm not rich. Like Uh I don't come from a rich family. Um, I'm aware of class because I am in the art world and I'm a, I'm a member of society, but, you know, to tear people down just for the sake of tearing them down when they're already probably so low and trying to figure out how to do things and how to run a business, it just feels really fucking dirty to me. I'm so, I'm so interested to hear you say that because, um, I, you know, I, you know, whatever, I like Instagram, it's the only social media I use, and the other night, you know, whatever, man, I was fucking bored and (laughs) scared, and I posted, like, a Ivanka Trump, you know, meme thing, and a handful of people I don't know called me out in the comments. Mm Mm-hmm. And one of them was like, you know, you're better than this. We deserve more from you. This is not the time for, and I was just like, I mean, obviously I'm an older person, you know, I'm going to be 54. So like part of me was like, um, I thought this was my Instagram. (laughs) So I still have this, like, I'm still laboring under the fantasy of like privacy and and possession Mm -hmm. that like I get to say what I want on that in that space. Um, And so I was super surprised about that. I was super surprised that people felt that they could call me out Mm -hmm. for humor. Mm -hmm. Um, I felt, I I was just, I really didn't know what to do with it, Mm -hmm. to be honest, as a response. Mm -hmm. Um, I know when people have said negative things before on my, I, I block them immediately. And I say that in my like little handle, like, you know, haters will be blocked. Like I, I don't broker any bullshit on the page mm-hmm. on my site or whatever it's called, but I didn't know it, whether or not to block these people or not, because I couldn't even understand what it was. They thought, well, one who they thought I was to them mm-hmm. that like somehow I've got to be above 
irony and sarcasm about Ivanka Trump. Like, really? I don't get to have my moment, too? Mm -hmm. Um, Or, two that um, they were looking to me for some kind of messaging. Three, that they felt they could call me out in the middle of all of this. Like, I just... I don't know quite what to make of all of that, to be honest. And well, you must deal with that so much more because your, your thing is so much more public. Yeah. Well, I was just, yeah. Um, so as somebody who has, you know, a, a lot of haters, a lot of people love me too. You yeah, know, yeah, yeah. But a lot of people don't like me. And the one thing that I, you know, I get really... I, I'm starting to think of the internet as like a person kind of like, and, right. and it's funny because no matter what you do and you should know this, no matter what you do on the internet, people will find a way to translate that into some kind of state of victimhood because right. that is what, you know, call out culture and cancel culture and all these things like that has become, you know, and it started with things that were good, like Time's Up and Me Too and even, right. you know, before that. And so it it has changed society and culture that now, you know, everyone can kind of have a voice. But what I've realized is that I have to just be willing to put myself out there, say and do what I feel is right for me, listen to my inner compass about what it is I want to communicate and I invite people regularly to unfollow me. Like I don't, uh, I don't really right. block people. I just say, well, you know, Instagram is a choose your own adventure. You've chosen right. to follow me. If you don't want to follow me, by all means, like I, I don't care. Um, and I'm, I'm not even like saying that to try to sound badass. Like uh-huh. I don't care. I mean, I really don't care. You know, I still identify as an artist, even though, you know, I, I sort of became a, a, a curator and then being a curator turned into becoming an art dealer. You uh-huh. know, I kind of had my own little like path with all of this. And right. now I feel like I'm kind of back to being some kind of an artist. I don't know what kind. Um and I just feel like, you know what, I don't go on people's Instagram pages and say, I don't like your brush strokes. Right. <laughs> that's right. not my... That's... I know. Yes. Yes. It's interesting. I've noticed on some of yours, because sometimes the comments on yours are can be very funny, and, um, and I've noticed that you do respond to people, and I've seen you say, like, you know, unfollow, right? Um, and I don't have it in me. Um, and I'm st- I think, again, it's partly a generational, you know, thing, like, you know, my punk early hip hop days. I'm just like, yes, you know, I just, I, you know, I can't even do it. Like yeah. my own narcissism or my own arrogant, you know, uh, responses to be, is to just not respond. Um, but it, damn, it's weird out there, man. I on know. the interweb. It and, is weird. And you know what? Like people are scared right now and, yes. and, and rightfully so. And yes you know, tensions are high and like anything can trigger anyone right now. I had yep. somebody, you know, I posted the the lineup for this week of people that I'm speaking to. And I had a few comments where people were like, oh my God, that list is exhausting. Or somebody else said like, um, wow, this is really a hyped up list. It looks like you're just trying to get attention. Oh and once God. again, I was just like, no one's forcing you to listen to it. 
That's right. You're welcome to. Maybe it will help you. Right. I'm doing this for free. Right. I'm, you know, I'm like everyone else. I'm like eating, you know, tons of English muffins, walking <laughs> back and forth between. What is it about being sick or confined that all of a sudden the English muffin is like the sanctuary bread? I do not understand. We too have, for the first time, I am not kidding you, in years there are english muffins in this house i do not understand the atavistic like go buy lots of english muffins. well like i think that english muffins are it's like so weird to me i think it's because like somehow they're not real carbs in our mind right yes exactly like they're the bread before bread was bad so we're still allowed to have it exactly it's very very weird man i'm very that's very funny because uh, even this morning, my father-in-law is with us and we've sort of, you know, set up like house, house rules, you know, like we're like in a dorm or like we're living together, like post-college or something. And like the house rule is, you know, before noon is like everybody, like everybody just needs to keep their shit, their shit. Like <laughs> that's the rule. But I go out because I'm sort of hardwired for hospitality and I lay out the breakfast options on the kitchen counter before sneaking away back to the room that I have. That's my, we each have a designated like space. And I just, every morning when I put these English muffins out, I'm like beside myself, you know, because <laughs> I have like, usually eat paleo bread, mm-hmm. and, like, you know, all this other you know, coconut kefir yogurt. Oh, and wow. Like all this crazy. You obviously live in Los Angeles. I do. I have a very LA breakfast routine that has been completely upended by my 82 year old father in law and this, like, you know, constant parade of raisin bread and English muffins. I've been following so. your. I- I have more than one Instagram account because I'm sneaky, uh-huh. and I've been uh-huh. I've been following your meals. On, oh, that's very kind. Thank you. <laughs> yes, it's the, I have to say the hours of the day I feel best are the uh, cooking and dinner hour. It's when I feel like, oh, we're gonna be fine. So from yeah. about like five to nine, I'm yeah. in good. I'm okay. You know, I got like I I'm just holding on to it. Like I got four solid good hours a day in me. And that's what I'm, so whenever I feel really blue or really scared or just really, I don't even know what the names for all the feelings are. I just remind myself that like tonight, I'll give you an advance. It's chicken tortilla soup. (laughs) (laughs) That's also a comfort food. Maybe I should make that. Yeah. Oh, totally. Totally. Well, I wanted to, I, I wrote down a few questions. Um, I saw your email. And so I'm, they're I'm relatively prepped. Okay. And, uh, you know, like this kind of blindsided us all. So I'm sure that you were like in the midst of some other project and then that happened, all of this shit happened. Um, yep. What have you, what have you been working on? Um. So are we in the loop now? Are you taping now? Yeah, well, we have been the whole time. It's not oh, okay, live, great. but yeah. All right, yeah. They'll so, hear about your English muffins, but... Okay, they will? Yeah. <laughs> okay, that's hilarious. Um, well, when... Before all this happened, I was in the um, throes of 
organizing an exhibition for Jack Shaman spot in upstate New York in Kinderhook. Jack and his partner Carlos basically there's a decommissioned public school building, public school in Kinderhook. And it's a brick front building. It's like incredibly familiar if you know, I'm I was born and raised in New York, so it's a kind of East Coast architecture of the public school. It's so overwhelming in its familiarity. And they've converted that space into a gallery space. And they did a beautiful job. They left like just the right amount of patina and cleaned up just the right amount. Like it's really wonderful. And the space has this incredible vibe. And Jack asked me to organize a show. So it's a big group show for the summer that was supposed to open on May 30th, which will now not obviously open on May 30th and we're all still in the throes of figuring that out. Um, and so that I was working on that and I, you know, is I'm also at like the beginning stages of working on another podcast. Um, oh, about, I heard about it. Oh, you did? Yeah. Well, I'm friends with Tao Win. Oh, there you go. Yes. She so loves I'm, you. Oh, I love Tao. And, um, uh, and so I've been, you know, I've been reading a lot about Anna Mendieta and Carl Andre because I'm, you know, sort of getting ready to do uh, a podcast about um, Mendieta and Andre and their story and, and maybe perhaps more particularly what it is about current language that we now have um, to, to perhaps tell that story differently or, or come at it differently or let that story tell us something different than it used to. I'm not exactly even sure what will happen, mm -hmm. but it's very clear to me that um, the kind of language we have now around some of the things we've already talked about, cancel culture, call out culture, time's up, me too. Um, none of that language was available in the mid 1980s mm -hmm. um, when Mendieta died and Andre was, you know, acquitted in the, in the face of her death. And, I'm, you know, and it was really, really striking to me that the MoMA rehang had no Andre, but two Mendietas. Mm -hmm. And I took that as a bit of a bellwether, um, for how we might think about the role that time and history play in these stories that we tell about art. Mm -hmm. Um, and as we all continually work, I think, um, I think to understand that art is both timeless and completely contextual and like, how do we hold that antinomy? Uh, how do we let the, that be live in our conversations? Like how do we not use one to cancel out the other, mm -hmm. so to speak and, and embrace the tension of art's timelessness and it's utter uh, capacity to be recontextualized in the contemporary moment that it finds itself in perpetually. So those were the things I was working on. And I'm also, um, you know, writing a book, trying to write a book. Writing books actually way harder than I thought it was going to be. It's very humbling. Um, and I have lots of essays because um, I've got, you know, I, I love, I consider myself more and more a writer and, um, uh, or this other lesser used phrase or the phrase that I still feel a tinge of embarrassment about, but I'm trying to get over like a, considered myself more and more a storyteller and trying to figure out new ways to tell the stories, the kinds of stories I'm interested in telling. Um, and so that's all the stuff I was working on before this happened. So 
I'm lucky some of it can go on, very much so. Um, and, you know, other things are very much up in the air. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's interesting about the, the, the being a writer and a storyteller. Um, uh, I, I kind of can relate to that. And why do you think you feel embarrassment about that? Oh, because, you know, I, um, when, when I came up, when I was in my early twenties, you know, I went to the Whitney program for independent study and, you know, uh, I guess 88, 89 or 89, 90, one of those two years. And I was, you know, 22 years old. I had just graduated from college. Mm -hmm. And at that point in time, um, I remember asking my one of my very good friends is Moira Davy and the artist Moira Davy and I she had been in the program and I said should I do curatorial or critical studies and she without skipping a beat said oh critical studies nobody respects curators mm-hmm. <laughs> but the thing is that was true then mm-hmm. nobody thought that someone quote unquote like me would be a curator mm-hmm. um, smart brainy people um read theory and went into the academy Mm -hmm. like and that's what I did I got a PhD in art history and I went my first job out of after um grad school was teaching a tenure track teaching job Mm -hmm. and no one would have used the word storyteller that was like you know so low rent not critical and not serious and you know not avant-garde or not advanced uh, you know all of those words were the terms of um value and storyteller was just like you know oh gosh i don't know i mean you know anyway well, I, yeah, I mean, things change, vernaculars change. Um, and yeah, of course, you know, I, I would like some, I don't have a PhD, but I would like to maybe have a higher rank than art world storyteller. But, <laughs> but you know what I have to say, like be, I, one of the questions I sent to you, I, I, without knowing we were going to have this conversation, I said, the role of a great curator is to be a great storyteller. and. You know, I think for a long time, I understand, listen, I don't want to be ignorant of any, I am ignorant of a lot of academic work. I studied critical theory in college and I, you know, spent, hung out a lot in the art history department at San Francisco Art Institute. And so, you know, I think I can get in line with what you're saying, but I think that a lot of curators and people with sort of these critical leanings um, became indecipherable to broader audiences. And so whenever I've curated shows, you know, for myself and for the artists that I was working with, as much as I wanted it to be sleek and sharp and something that would be respected in Europe or, you know, I always felt like I had to take into consideration that I had audiences that would be coming to art with all different sort of levels of art literacy. And I think that, you know, Pixar, I always uh, think about Pixar movies because, you know, Pixar 
a grown up can watch Pixar and laugh and cry and think it's amazing and be profound, feel it to be profound and their heart will be touched. And then a six month old that doesn't even speak English yet gets it, you know? Uh. And and I think that those people that are sort of like that, but in the art world tend to have larger impacts. That doesn't mean you have to dumb down projects you're working on, but to give people different points of entry is important. Um, well, I agree with you completely. Unfortunately, because I don't have children and I am a kind of cultural snob, I've never seen a Pixar movie. However, I know it's shocking, um, <laughs> but, um, uh, but I do feel like one of the things, um, that I feel really, really lucky about in my, uh, so-called life, um, is when I was in graduate school and I had great teachers, I studied with Rosalind Krauss and Hal Foster and Susan Buck Morris. I mean, I had an extraordinary graduate education. Uh, which I would never turn in for, I would never exchange for anything. The other thing I was doing was I had been hired to give public tours at the Whitney Museum mm -hmm. um, in the education department by the then educate, the curator of education there and the head of the education department, Connie Wolf. And Connie gave me a very explicit brief when she hired me in the 90s. And she said, I want you to translate all of the theory you're reading and learning. And I want you to give a talk that uses all of that knowledge, but that uses it in such a way that anybody who walks in off the street to see an exhibition on Madison and 75th Street on any given Saturday or Sunday can understand what you're saying. Mm -hmm. And at the time, it felt like a challenge, like an intellectual linguistic challenge yes. like could I in fact read Marx and Freud could I read Gayatri Spivak and Homi Baba could I read Leo Bersani could I read um Clement Greenberg right could I read all of those people could I read Baldwin you know could I read Fanon and use them uh to make arguments in the public sphere. And I was also at the time reading Habermas and reading Michael Warner and, and, you know, reading people about the public sphere and the counter public sphere. And I never took it as an insult or like it was a dumbing down. I actually kind of took it on as a challenge mm -hmm. and it, I think more than probably any other activity that I did as a young person kind of coming into my own intellectual and creative life, it's the thing that has lingered, stayed, or given me some kind of track record uh, because I've always been able to do it. I've always been able to stand up in front of a very diverse group of people. And by diversity, I mean all of it, you know class, uh, the color line, ethnicity, gender, nationality, age, education level, and keep it real, but keep it real in a way that the people who've read the Foucault totally know what I'm talking about, and the people who haven't read the Foucault also know what I'm talking about. Um, but, you know, I will also say about, like, 
and this is maybe confessional and perhaps the days bring on confessional thinking but I think it's important for another reason what I'm about to say I also really really love a huge crowd mm-hmm. like so when I was giving those tours at the Whitney and I would get 150 people my adrenaline my endorphins my oxy whatever it is that we make in our bodies you know all of that was on full uh, flow and I loved it you know still I mean the last big tour I gave was for the Noah Davis opening at David's Werner in New York and I had a huge crowd and I get going man which is a way of saying I don't want to sound Pollyanna-ish about it I know that it does something for me that there's like I'm trying to make my thoughts and what I have access to accessible to a larger public. And I also know that it feeds my ego and that I really enjoy it and that I really like it and that I have this performative quality about myself and, you know, um, that I seek love and that I seek approval and the big applause at the end always makes me feel really good. And so it's just a way of trying to talk about, um, and it's been something I've been harping on for a little bit now, as curators, as institutional people, as art world people, like trying to come clean about why do you do what you do? Like really get real about what are your personal stakes, your institutional stakes, your emotional stakes, your financial stakes. Like let's be transparent about how this all works so that we can be potentially more honest with one another. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, I have a sense right now. I always wonder like how Jerry Gagosian got so popular because, um, you know, very, very, very brief background on me. I, I used to own a gallery here in Los Angeles and, um, a year and a half ago, I became very sick with the, with a disease. Um, and I was, you know, I went blind, I went deaf, I was, uh, I couldn't, you know, I could not look at a screen. Um, I, you know, was brought back to life. You know, I, I really went through some health shit and, um, and I lost my whole life. I had to close my gallery and I was 32 years old. I had to move back home with my parents in Florida. And, you know, I went from kind of having this great life to, feeling like a failure and a loser and, you know, in a suburb in Florida where nobody understood what the art world was. Mm. Nobody understood what I just came from. And, um, and so I started making, you know, jokes on the internet so that I could talk about the art world because my audience certainly wasn't, you know, my parents, it what I didn't have any friends there. Um, and because I had, such low, low, low stakes. And at the time I was anonymous, I felt like I could just be real, like you're talking about. And I think people responded to that. And, and so I think about it a lot right now, like, why is it that I have this platform now? Why is it that people resonate with this voice? And, and definitely on the class divide, uh, you know, definitely on the uh, social hierarchy of the art world. I've got, you know, very, very well-respected, you know, people. And then I've got like 
teenagers in Atlanta that are thinking about becoming artists all following. And I'm like, what does that mean? And uh, I think for me, it's because I, I might be projecting, but I feel like there's so much fluff and we don't even know like what is real anymore. We don't know what is journalism. We don't even, we don't, we don't know what we're getting anymore. We don't know what is a commercial venture versus um, just a pure artistic endeavor. We don't, it's so indecipherable right now. And I think that people are thirsty for truth uh. and they will take it however they can get it. Uh. And I mean, I think I'm a product of my times. Like, I don't want to also sound Pollyanna-ish. I'm not trying to say like, oh, I'm perfect because I'm just waving this flag of truth and freedom. That's that's not necessarily how I view myself. But what I what I do see, because I can see when responses are real and strong on the internet based on likes, based on engagement, based on what people are telling me in my inboxes. And it's like the realer I get, the more they want it. Right. Well, I do think, you know, I think someone of my generation is, I'm a little, oh gosh, the word truth makes me so nervous. You know what I mean? Um, That on the, and yet somehow I've managed, this may just be a smoke and mirrors game semantically, but I am interested in what seems authentic. Uh, okay. Like, authentic. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like that what seems like it's coming from a place of um, a degree of realness, self-exposure, genuine emotion, um, and, an in, and a kind of intelligence that accepts complexity. Like those things have become more and more important to me. And I think that that was all happening before this uh, virus outbreak. You know, I mean, that that was happening. And even it was happening before the Trump election. You know, I, I mean, I do think, you know, the I mean, my, it's my own historical cast of mind. I, I do think the history of this time will, in fact, begin very profoundly with um you know, American history this is, you know, will begin very profoundly with 9-11 and, um, you know, the the rupture of a certain kind of the myth of American exceptionalism and what the fallout of that is uh, means increasingly having to be open to what I always, you know, one of my favorite words is aporia, which is, you know, two simultaneously existing truths that cancel one another out. Um, and I think that, yeah, this, this, this moment that we're in will probably only increasingly call for some kind of authenticity and that authenticity can take the form of sarcasm. I'm not a big fan of irony myself, but you know, irony, humor, jest, uh, these are, these are age old strategies, um, that will, um, be exercised, I would argue probably pretty greatly in the days, weeks, months, and probably years to come. 
Uh, I think that it's interesting that you mentioned 9-11 and all of this because um, I'm 34 now Uh and 9-11 happened when I was 16. Um, I watched, you know, the second plane hit the building live on TV. And I remember my geography teacher at the time, they came over on the the voice intercom Mm -hmm. Uh and they said, um, teachers like they were screaming they're like turn turn the tv off now right and my teacher at the time god she was so awesome I wish I could remember her name she looked at us and she said you guys are 16 you're old enough to handle this and you're gonna watch history happen right now wow and I remember that that you know I almost get emotional when I think about it because it really completely shattered sort of the identity that I had leading up to that. You know, I was a little kid in the nineties and you want to talk about American exceptionalism. Like I, you know, my family, we lived abroad when I was younger. Um, and my father worked for USAID. So we were in post-Soviet Russia, you know, after the collapse of communism. And I mean, I felt exceptional. I remember going there and seeing like no food on the shelves. I remember seeing poverty. I remember seeing bodies in the street that they would just leave through the winter because they wouldn't decay. And, you know, um, and I remember genuinely feeling like I am from the best country in the world. We know and we need to go out and help the rest of the world. And to watch from basically, you know, 9-11 on what, and, you know, then the Iraq war and, you know, all these things, I feel sort of traumatized as a 34-year-old. I was telling my mom the other day, I'm like, mom, I feel old. Uh, I feel old right now because, like, it, it's been nonstop. And then, you know, a little bit of hope with Obama, but, you know, things didn't, like, magically change then. And then we, you know, got... Donald Trump, you know, in office and me too. And time's up. I mean, it has just been certainly whatever reality I had adapted into or thought I was coming into as a child does not exist on the other side. Well, you know, it's interesting that you say you feel traumatized because of course you, you are, you were, you have been, um, And Freud writes really interestingly about trauma. Um, You know, Freud says it takes two traumas to make a trauma. You know, the first trauma happens and most of us don't actually know what to do with it because trauma by definition is bound up with that which is not linguistically expressible, right? So trauma is the blankness. And so the first trauma is often for most people largely a space of blankness. And then there's another trauma that happens because life goes on and most people in the world have more than one trauma. And it's that second trauma that somehow maps on to the first one and language begins to be somehow possible. Um, You know, and people have made interesting use of that kind of narrative, how Foster uses it to talk about art history. But the person I think for me, who's been the most interesting about it is the um, writer Sarah Schulman, who was very involved in the AIDS 
ACT UP movement and um, AIDS activism in New York during the plague years, which was a trauma. And she said that 9-11 was the second trauma that basically allowed one to see the real trauma that had happened in the AIDS years, you know, which was basically a trauma that she sort of brilliantly focuses on gentrification, right, and the change of real estate in Manhattan. Because I don't know if you know this or, you know, if people remember, but, you know, in the days pre-gay marriage when no one had, when gay people really didn't have the same kind of property rights that we have now, if your lover died of AIDS, HIV, uh, and you lived in his or her rent-stabilized apartment, you often got kicked out the day after because you weren't on the lease or you were on the lease, but it was really the other person was the primary leaseholder. And those, the emptying out of a certain kind of rent-controlled and rent-stabilized apartment in Manhattan as a result of the AIDS crisis, uh, Shulman argues was the beginning foothold for the massive corporatization of real estate development in New York that we then saw after 9-11. It's a really brilliant argument. And I have a feeling that for a lot of heterosexual people, this trauma is the trauma that's going to let them process 9-11, you know, because they don't, they didn't, most heterosexual people didn't really deal with the trauma of the AIDS crisis. Um, and just so everybody knows, almost all gay people right now who live through the AIDS crisis are, to use the new language, deeply triggered by what is happening. This is not our first pandemic. Uh, this is not the first time we've watched a government show callous indifference to its citizens and ignore uh, medical experts um, and, generally speaking, not be prepared. Uh, so a lot of us are pretty you know, having a little uh, PTSD response to, to what's happening. But I do think, um, yeah, 9-11 and this virus, particularly because the way the virus is now, as of today, March 23rd, it's looking like New York City is going to be the epicenter it currently is. I hope, I mean, we'll see what happens. Um, yeah, those two, those two things are going to have to be fought together. Yeah. Yeah, I, 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 I think that there is going to be, I don't expect it to be immediate. I, I, I kind of think it's ridiculous personally that a lot of people right now are sort of, I understand the need to try to pretend like things are going on status quo, whether that means like moving an exhibition online or you know, people are posting works in progress or this or that, you know, but I think that six months down the line, a year down the line, two years down the line, we're going to be seeing some pretty interesting and impactful artwork made out of this situation, uh. much like we've seen, you know, artists who, you know, directly or indirectly took on the topic of HIV and AIDS and the plague. Um, you know, I, I, when I was preparing to ask you questions and I was thinking about you and your work, I was, I, I wanted a little perspective from you on, you know, the difference of how an artist can exist in situations like this. Like there's the artist who just records, right? You know, and we've had 
forever incredible historical painters from before there was even photographers, you know, who were uh, imbuing uh, imagery with emotion, with history, with with lived experience that then, like you said, because art is timeless, can be translated for the future. But then there's the works that sort of come out of cultural or social trauma that are unexpected. And um, that I'm so interested to see. Yeah, it's really interesting. I I wonder, you know, um, uh, you know, Duchamp once said something, I'm going to mangle it a little bit, um, but he said something like, um, you know, you cannot really even begin to understand what a work of art means until 50 years after it's made. And I think that there's a, just such an intense truth in that. And so when I think about who for me was the great both chronicler and artist of the plague years of HIV AIDS, it was Felix Gonzalez Torres. And at the time, you know, to encounter that work, to encounter, you know, did I eat the candy, not eat the candy, the candy dissipates, the candy's replenished, you know, the light bulbs blow out, the light bulbs can be, do you leave them out? Do you put in a new light bulb? All of those, all of the machinations of, installing and thinking about how to engage with a Gonzalez Torres all seem to be about this sort of excruciating extinguishing of people that was happening. These like dimming, burned out lights, these beautiful pieces of candy disappeared, right? We're all metaphors for the, the staggering loss that the art world was going through at the time. Then years, years later, I installed one of the candy pieces when I was working at Harvard. I installed the amazing gold foil uh, candy pieces, which is called, you know, something like Untitled Landscape for Ronnie. And it's um, in Ama, it's an homage or it's a dialogue with Ronnie Horn's incredible two pieces of gold foil laying one on top of the other. And I installed it in the middle of, I guess... The recession, you know, um, and the undergrads at Harvard who knew nothing of the AIDS crisis, nothing of the AIDS political movement around that crisis, when they understood that they could do as they wished with the piece, they began taking candies and making like drawings with them on the floor uh, making sculptures out of them. I mean, they did shit with them that I found personally shocking, like almost a kind of body blow, like of disrespect. And the security guard and the person who ran the space that I was working in at the time at the Carpenter Center said, well, do you want us to tell the security guard that they can't do that? And again, the, 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 Gen Xer than I am, I'm like, oh, no, 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 I'm no cop, and go tell no cop to be no cop, like, <laughs> like, Felix said you could do what you wanted, like, I'm not getting into it, and it was, it was crazy, and it was a lesson in the changing meaning, mm-hmm. right, and the most recent conversation I had about Felix's worst work was with an artist who was trying to negotiate an entirely new way of thinking about artist editions, mm-hmm. 
that. And as we were talking about it, I realized the person who had done the most work in that register was actually Felix Gonzalez Torres because of the kinds of contracts he was writing. And so me and this artist made recourse to those contracts. And so in the face of a new hyper extended art world with this like, you know, fever dream of money, Felix now is important in this wholly different way. So I guess what I'm trying to say is there may be really interesting work that emerges out of this. The, tr the work that will have the staying power, I would argue, is the work that has so much built into it that it's going to be able to continue evolving over time and have answers for questions that maybe it didn't even know were yet to be asked. Right. I'm reading Ninth Street, <coughs> excuse me, Women uh, right now. Have you read that? I have. And, um, and of course, you know, I studied art for seven years. So my God, I know a decent amount about abstract expressionism. But what I'm, you know, struck by having read, going chapter by chapter and reading about these women and, and how they came to their work, what I'm struck by is their, their shock, their trauma, and their inability to inject that into form, right? Like they couldn't paint figuratively anymore because it just didn't, it didn't make sense. And that work, and, and, and also, you know, even like the, you know, the work that Japanese artists were making after Hiroshima, you know, just sort of their inability to create, you know, a painting of a, a beautiful nude woman holding an apple or, you know, whatever. Right. Um, and don't worry, that's coming back anytime now. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, I, I, I think about that and, and to what you're saying, like I go, you know, I love Helen Frankenthaler. I love so many of the abstract expressionist painters, even Mark Rothko. Um, and I, I look at those works and you're right. They were powerful enough then that me, somebody who has never lived through any of those things, I can relate to that. I can, re right. I can relate to that inability when there's sometimes there's no words. Yep. Well, I think abstract expressionism was really good on the no words part. You know, I mean, I think, uh, uh, I think, you know, there were a set of historical circumstances, both political and aesthetic, that led people to, you know, a place where they needed to make a picture. Um, that actually in part was about the fact that language wasn't readily available. And that, again, to go back to trauma, is mm -hmm. part of trauma's wheelhouse. Mm -hmm. Is It's freezing up or gumming up or blanking out of language. Um, now, the, the complexity there, of course, is that language is always already with us there is no life outside of it mm -hmm. you know so if you are um an artist or a thinker or just a human being you're negotiating that 
um, every day and you're negotiating it every time you tell someone you love them, you know, like, you know, I tell my wife, I love her. She tells me she loves me. Those three little words are so impoverished, (laughs) you know, (laughs) but they're, they're what we have. And so we use them readily. Uh, do they really describe what it is that I actually feel or that she feels for me or that even more poignantly and uh, powerfully that we make together Mm -hmm. uh, between us, you Mm -hmm. know, Uh, and then in making it together between us, how we potentially offer it to others. So much of this um, is in that open place, which is a, you know, it's why I like pictures. I mean, like, truly, you know, I mean, I like words because I'm kind of good at words and I like words, but I really, really, really like pictures. So uh, what you're saying right now, did you, have you ever listened to this uh, band called Modest Mouse? Yes. They have this. I'm so, I feel so good right now that when you said, have you ever listened? I was like, oh, fuck. It's like literally a middle-aged person's <laughs> nightmare. It's like, oh, man. No. <laughs> Here we go. There's this, but yes, I have listened to Modest Mouse. There's this line in one of their songs where they say, language is the liquid that we're all dissolved in. Great for cleaning up problems after they've created them. There you go. That's a very good line. And, um, you know, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to trip out right now and, and reel me back in if, if you think I'm just sounding nuts, but, um, you know, I've been, I, I, I was watching uh, a video on YouTube that was about the poetry of, um, the first four books of the Bible Uh and, you know, because there's so many literal interpretations of the Bible that a lot of people get lost in the fact that it's actually poetry. Right. And, um, and you know, there's so much about language just in the first book of the Bible. And, you know, the first line in the first book of the Bible says in the beginning was the word and the word was God. Right. And, and to take that, you know, even further and thinking about like original sin and all these like, you know, things that are problematic. Um, one, one thing that, you know, I, I always resented about Christianity and, and, and I'm not Christian, so I'm not like, you know, trying to propagate some belief system here. But one thing I always resented is that they sort of implied very early on that we're flawed from the beginning. And, you know, I didn't, I, I don't like that. Right. Cause that hurts my, that hurts my ego to think that I'm flawed. But as I'm going through this process of, you know, I'm going to use air bunnies, like growing up and being an artist and being a curator and being all these different things and understanding that kind of no matter how I set out because I'm human, whatever it is I'm going to do will have flaws but that doesn't mean that there's not worth and beauty and value in these endeavors. Right. Well, I mean, that brings me of, of a mind to say a, a, a few things. One is, um, 
and I was taught this by the artist Mayor Lederman Eucles, you know, the Jewish tradition imagines the world as a broken vessel. And every day the task of human beings is to perform a mitzvah, and the mitzvah is some small gesture of repair of this broken vessel. And there's an understanding, an implicit understanding that the flaw that Christianity makes so shameful and deeply embedded in the person, uh, one of the things I like about this idea of the broken vessel is that it's, it, it's like the Big Bang, like it doesn't really have a shape, it's everywhere, it's everything, it's moving constantly. Um, and that all of our tasks is to engage in these acts of repair and that mitzvahs can be really small a mitzvah is you know you someone drops something you bend down you pick it up you help them you know um you you go out of your way to do something that you normally wouldn't do and it's a gesture of repair of this repair of brokenness um and the other thing i heard recently uh was I was listening to this podcast with Peter Sheldahl and Sheldahl, when asked about his own sort of religious beliefs, because as we, as most of us know now, you know, he's quite ill. He has a terminal uh, prognosis. And he said, you know, what he thinks is that human beings are hardwired for belief. And I really like that too, because I, you know, I grew up in a family with a very religious grandmother, and my aunt was a cloistered Catholic nun, lived in a monastery for 56 years of her life, lived a cloistered life. And I didn't believe in their God, white male dude with a beard who didn't, you know, who thought I was wrong because I was homosexual or something like that, all those horrible things that I carried with me perhaps as a child. But I believed in their belief. I believed in their faith. I believed in their capacity to believe that there was something much bigger than them, that they were absolutely inextricably connected to everything and everyone else, um, that this life is only this life, that time is vast, that space is vast, that time and space cannot be separated. And I realized how much of my own belief in art and artists is really, really similar to those sorts of structures of faith that um, religious people have. And I think it's okay to start talking about some of that stuff. You know, mm -hmm. I really do think it's okay to start talking about, um, you know, what is it we're doing when we're making art, looking at art, thinking about it and talking about it? What structures of belief are we engaged in when we have those conversations with one another? Mm -hmm. um, and that, I think, ties back into things we were talking about earlier about whether it's truth or authenticity, whatever the word is that you're using to generate those ideas, whether it's what it means that there's no language for certain things, uh, you know, what it means to speak in language that is obscurantist versus language that is open. All of those things feel very active for me when we start to think about whether or not our commitment to art is 
uh, bound up in structures of belief and faith that are that are millennia old and transhistorical, transglobal. Mm-hmm. Definitely, um, I I think more than ever, you know, language and technology now these tools that we both upheld and bemoaned throughout this conversation, you know, are amazing because um, they enable us to tell so many different versions of reality, if that makes any sense. There's, there's, There's billions of versions of reality sort of going on simultaneously all the time. And, um, and I'm grateful for that. Um, I'm also grateful though, for the things that are, are outside of language that just are, that just exist. And I think a lot of times that is the gift that art gives the world. That is what music gives the world. That's what, you know, all these things that exist and even something like poetry, because we know like poetry isn't the words, it's everything between the words. That's right. And holy, holy shit. What, what, a, what a difficult and what an incredible um, recording of our human experience. Right. And I do, um, again, I think I would say this even if the times weren't as dark as they are. I really, really believe that the stuff that's, that, it, that so much of it, like its primary engine is love. I really do, like, I'm in that space and have been in that space now for a really long time. Like, it might not look like love. It might not feel like love because it might be trying to grab you by the shirt and shake you. It might be trying to fuck with your safety or comfort. It might be trying, it might be calling out to the transgressive or the, with, you know, or the stupid. But the good stuff, the stuff I, like, the stuff I feel in my heart to be, like, really good, dare I say great art, that stuff almost always emanates from a place of love. You know, the desire of the artist to give something and the desire of the viewer to receive, and the receiving is in of itself a form of gift giving, right? Because, like, to be the receiver is, as Duchamp says, is to complete the work, right? It's that, it's again, we're back to this Jewish, you know, restoring of the broken vessel. Like, you know, um, Hilary Pessis makes an amazing painting of a domestic interior, I receive that into I receive that painting and in receiving that painting I com- I'm completing the gesture that she has initiated and in my writing about her work I then make a gesture that the reader then completes and the reader then makes some other gesture you know like that I really believe in this um the profundity of this reciprocity that we're engaged in and if we could think about that reciprocity more and be just a little more conscious to its nuances, uh, I have I have a kind of faith in in us as as people who are interested in this 
world, this art world, to um, make it anew as it will have to be made anew. Yeah. Well, I think that's a perfect place to end our conversation. Good. I like to end on hope. <laughs> yes. And um, thank you so much for coming on. And I know that this has been such a treat for me. And I'm sure that this will be a mitzvah for a lot of other people listening to this at home. <laughs>